Let us now turn for our scripture reading and our text this morning to Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil? when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish, and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself, for men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor, yet does not understand, is like the beasts that perish. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I had indicated that we are going to begin a series of sermons on the book of Ephesians, and I hope to begin that uh, in a few weeks when I return from Synod. Uh, But before that, I want to preach on a few individual uh, texts that have come to my attention lately, uh, beginning with this psalm, uh, Psalm 49. It's a psalm with a big theme. It's a psalm about a very, very basic theme. It's a theme of obvious importance, and uh, it's a theme that demands the attention of all people. That's how it begins, a summons to all the inhabitants of the world, to all people Whoever they may be, wherever they may live, uh, whatever their status might be, whether low or high, literally whether the sons of Adam or the sons of Ish, those are different Hebrew words that describe man. The one describes man in his weakness and frailty as made of dust, and the other describes man in a way that might uh, indicate certain honor and splendor. Ish, a warrior, a strong man. But whether high or low, here's a message for him. Whether rich or poor, whatever their status. It's a, me- it's a message for uh, the Queen of England or the King of England, and it's the same message for the unknown s- street person who might die without anyone attending his funeral. It's a message for everyone. It's also a proper theme for evangelism. 
There may be a time when it is a good thing to ask someone very directly if they have any hope that extends beyond this life, any certain hope, not wishful thinking, but do they have any certain hope beyond this life? That's an important question. It's a question that that confronts people uh, with uh, the reality that ultimately they cannot avoid, and it's a reality that they're foolish to ignore. Some of you perhaps have heard the, the, the quotation of Ben Franklin who said that there are two certainties, death and taxes. And uh, we might well smile at that because actually death is far more certain than taxes. And uh, it's a much more serious problem than taxes. They hardly even deserve to be compared in terms of the solemn reality of death and taxes. Death, a certainty. And isn't that obvious? Does it really need uh, to be repeated or do we need to belabor the point? Well, yes, it is obvious But then we might also ask, why does the psalmist present this subject as if it were a a, a proverb, as if it were a parable? He even describes his message as, as a dark saying. Well, the reason for that is that however obvious it is, it takes wisdom to really get it. It takes wisdom to be so affected by it as to live in the light of this truth, and to shape your priorities and your whole values accordingly. Wisdom. That's what this psalm is about. It's a wisdom psalm. Wisdom that sees through the materialism that rules people's lives. And also wisdom that sees the passing and the temporary nature of the present troubles of life. It's wisdom that faces reality, including the reality of death, but with a kind of wisdom that is able to do that without fear, but with real comfort. And that's the summons of this psalm to us. Live without fear. Live without fear in the real world, in the world as it actually is. We want to begin by considering the fearlessness of faith. That's how we should hear uh, verse 5 and the, the question uh, that it poses. Why should I fear in the days of evil? That's not just kind of an inquiry. That's a kind of challenge. That's a, a kind of, of uh, cry. It's a rhetorical question. It's kind of like the, the questions that we sang from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You see, the implied answer is no one, nothing. With God as my strength and my light, I can hurl this challenge to the universe. Why should I fear? I should not. I will not. It would be rather cowardly. It would be rather unbelieving for me to fear. We think of Nehemiah when he was tempted to be afraid and to take refuge in the temple from his enemies. And he said, shall a man like I flee? 
Lord, they're trying to shame me. They're trying to make me afraid. You recognize that, that temptation. So it's a kind of verse to inspire, uh, the resolution and courage of faith. In other words, it's a kind of verse also to kind of repeat to ourselves. Because the fact is that we're all, uh, sometimes afraid and we're all sometimes tempted to a fear that dishonors God and dishonors who we are before him and who he is to us. And so it's a good kind of verse to to repeat to ourselves. Why should I fear? And it's a, a question here that is honest about facing real threats. Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? Why should I fear even when there are evil people that are out to get me? They're at my heels. They're chasing me. They're surrounding me. That was, again, the context of Psalm 27. When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh. Now, that's pretty graphic language. It's like, they they came against me to devour and to destroy me. There's a threat to life itself. And yeah, that sounds very drastic. And it sounds really heroic, doesn't it? Uh, to face that kind of threat with this kind of question? Why should I fear when such iniquity surrounds me? It's at my heels. We haven't faced perhaps that kind of direct threat to our lives. We may someday. But we certainly face all kinds of reasons to fear, things that would make us afraid. What about evil people in positions of power over us? What about the fact that uh, uh, there seems to be a trend in high places towards the kinds of materialistic uh, Marxist approach to economics? What about evil powers that would, would threaten our, our freedom? Freedom of religion and freedom of education and freedom of travel and freedom of work. What about government policies that will eventually collapse our economy if they're pursued on this trajectory that they're on and destroy our financial security? You know, I might think that we have we have plenty to worry about for ourselves, or if not for ourselves, for our children or our grandchildren. And there's a sense in which we say, yes, that's exactly right. If we live in a materialistic world and we're shaped and our values are defined by these present threats. In fact, this question actually calls us to examine the foundation for our security, doesn't it? It's not in our middle class or upper class lives. It's not in our investments. It's not in our government pensions or our savings. There is an utter, an absolute contrast in this psalm between the fearlessness of faith and confidence in riches. However great they may be, however much we might have, however long we may enjoy it on this earth, there's an absolute utter contrast between security in such things and the security that belongs to true wisdom. We know 
that money cannot ultimately answer the most urgent and the most inescapable reality that this psalm talks about quite extensively. And this psalm gives a lot of attention to the folly or the foolishness, then, of those who trust in their wealth. Why are they foolish? This is the way of those who are foolish, verse 13 says. Well, what is their way? What characterizes them? Well, they trust in their wealth, though it cannot deliver them from death. It cannot deliver their loved ones. It cannot deliver themselves. Isn't that what you hear in verse 6 and following? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. All the money in the world can't uh, deliver people from that sentence of death. And actually, we don't hear this psalm aright unless we remember that death indeed was the sentence that God pronounced in the event of sin and rebellion against him. This psalm doesn't allow for a view of death that sees it as just part of a natural process. Oh, it's just part of the circle of life. No, no, no. It views death as a day of reckoning to God. And all the money in the world cannot bribe God. It can't pay Him off. There's no possibility of posting bond in order to escape this sentence. There's no possibility of bail. It's a sentence that will be exacted in God's time. And whatever people trusted in in this life, nothing, utterly worthless. All people actually have a kind of inescapable knowledge of that. They may not admit it. Often in times of great danger and the fear of death, uh, they'll pray, or they have this lurking dread about death. And the Bible teaches that the basis for that is that the sting of death is sin. And there's a kind of inescapable uh, consciousness, however it may be suppressed and squelched, that there is a judgment to come. There's a darkness about death. However, people deny it. But the more people know about it, the more they face it, the, the greater their foolishness in ignoring it. So that's another reason why uh, it is so foolish to trust in wealth. People trust in wealth despite what they see, despite what they see with their own eyes. Listen to verse uh, 10 and 11. He sees wise men die. Likewise, the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. You know, this really describes uh, the deceitfulness of the human heart, doesn't it? Describes people who know better, really. But their worldly outlook prevails over them. And that's why they're foolish. In fact, their inward thought leads them to prefer their worldly legacy above their souls. 
You know, there's something hollow, isn't there, about people who talk about, well, we live on. We live on in the memories of our children. We live on in the memories of our grandchildren. Yeah, maybe for a few generations. They might remember you. They'll grieve at your funeral for a little while. Then they'll talk about you occasionally. But after two or three generations, unless you're famous, you're forgotten. People don't live on in their achievements. They don't live on in their legacy in such a way as to take away the emptiness and the hollowness of the reality of their own death? Some people prefer that legacy over their own souls. And this worldliness, it's perpetuated in their descendants. Generation after generation follows the same mentality. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings following the same value system. But then there are the facts. And reality for them becomes truly dreadful. They die, inevitably, like beasts, without preparation, without hope. Proverbs uh, 27 says that uh, hell and destruction are never full, or hell and or the grave and destruction. And uh, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. In other words, it, it, it compares a kind of uh, covetous craving that characterizes people in life with the, the insatiable appetite of the grave. That's a pretty grim picture, isn't it? You hear it again in Proverbs 30. Uh, the grave is among those four things that are never satisfied, that cry out, give, give. Generation after generation, year after year, are consumed by this, by this uh, monster. That's kind of the way it's described here, isn't it? Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. Death is like the grim shepherd who gathers sheep together and then consumes them. And they remain under its power. And all their earthly glory, all their beauty, it's consumed. It's never to return. Perhaps worst of all is that statement there in verse 19, where it says, they shall never see the light. Remember how the Lord Jesus Christ describes hell as a place of outer darkness. That's the dread reality. And it's the kind of reality that everyone will face eventually. And it's wisdom to face it now. And see and believe the alternative. And that leads us to consider the security of believers in Christ. This psalm also presents a great contrast. We hear it in verse 14, the the, the second part. It says, death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. The wicked remain in darkness, but there is a bright morning that is to come for the upright. Lazarus died and was gathered to uh, Abraham's bosom. That's a figurative description of the comfort and joy of heaven in the presence of God and the saints. And the rich man who enjoyed his good things on earth, remember? He lifted up his eyes in hell, but it was too late. 
God's people may be pursued. They may be persecuted in this life. But the tables will be turned when their deliverance comes. And verse 15 turns this into a a very personal confession of assurance. Now, there's a dark message in this psalm. We've heard it. It seems like that's what it's mostly about. We've elaborated on that a bit. But that's for those who are far from God, right? A man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beasts that perish. This description of death is not a description to terrify God's people. It's a description that of those who don't know God, who do not have this hope. It's a dark saying for those who are far from God, but it's played on a harp, right? Verse 4, I will disclose my dark sayings on a harp. Yes, we sing such songs in corporate worship. We face the reality of death and judgment, the justice of God, and we sing about them to God's glory and in the comfort of knowing the great Redeemer who rescues us from these things. So this dark song is not just a dirge. It's not just a lament. The darkness is not for God's children. That does not mean we do not face death and the grave. It doesn't mean that we 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 never have to struggle with fears. Never have to hold up that shield of faith and cast our anxieties and cares upon God. No, we do. But we know that when death does its worst, deliverance is at hand. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Psalm 73 is very similar to this psalm. I encourage you to read that. Psalm 37 is another one that has common themes with this psalm. In Psalm uh, 73, we have this account of David's temptation to envy the wicked and their wealth and their prosperity, living without fear. And then he went into the house of God and he got the true perspective on things. He entered reality and saw that indeed you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how are they are brought to desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. You'll deliver me from the power of the grave. In fact, my spirit immediately will enter the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ when I die. God has already received us. In fact, the tense of this verb actually is not future. It's present. And God has already taken us unto himself in grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the God who gives grace is the God who gives glory, and he will take us unto himself. It's a word that's actually used for Enoch. Enoch was not. God took him. God received him. That's the way it is for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints were reminded, again, had the sure hope of the life to come. We hear it in this psalm. We hear it in so many places. 
But this hope is all the more clear in Christ Jesus. This redemption that Peter spoke about through his precious blood was manifested to us in its accomplishment, its proclamation. You see, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that that word redeem there in uh, verse uh, 15, or rather, uh, yeah, in verse 15, that word redeem in the fullness of its meaning is accomplished. Yes, there is no amount of money that can redeem a soul from death, from eternal death. But the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has paid for all my sins because he suffered the sentence that was against me. He suffered the dreadfulness of that sentence. That's not simply the dissolution of body and soul, but he suffered the judgment that my sins deserved, and he suffered them on my behalf, and he paid the the last might. And he redeemed me, not simply by power, but by purchase in my place. That precious blood, that is sufficient for all. Yes, sufficient for the Queen of England, sufficient for an unknown prisoner, guilty of the darkest crimes, who cries out to God, who believes in this one and only Savior, who takes refuge in Him. That's wisdom, brothers and sisters, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn away from every kind of materialistic hope, refuge, comfort, security, and repent of the folly of thinking that we can find satisfaction and happiness in life, in things. My heart and flesh fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever, my eternal inheritance, my security, my hope, my comfort in life and in death, that I belong to this faithful Savior who with his precious blood has satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. And I could go on, that wonderful confession of faith, that faith that is the answer, the remedy to our fears. This is the lesson to live by. You know, the psalm ends with an exhortation. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. Don't let the present wealth, the present power of worldly people, even when that power is used against you as it was in this psalm, don't let it so intimidate you as to drive you into faithless fear. Or don't fear missing out. The person who really finds his security is deluded, right? Isn't that the, the, the lesson of the parable of the rich man? You remember the parable that Jesus told in, in Luke chapter 12? This man whose fields yielded plentifully and he said within himself, I will build bigger barns. There I can store all my crops and I'll have many goods laid up for many years. And I will say to my soul, soul, take your ease. You've got it made. 
Verse 18 says, while he lives, he blesses himself, right? That's a description of the rich man. He blessed himself. And other people blessed him too. Now there's, there's a successful man. Look at him. He's got it made. Remember the word of God to him. You fool. You fool. This night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will all your riches be? Really makes no difference. It's a delusion to trust in such things. But this exhortation, even at the end of this psalm, it assumes our need to be vigilant, doesn't it? Because we can lose our grip on reality. We can let it slip. We can fall into materialistic ways of thinking. That's why Jesus said to his own disciples, you cannot serve God and mammon. And Jesus said to his disciples, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's no ransom for it that he could ever produce. And so live, live without fear in reality. Don't envy the wicked. And don't store up treasures on earth as if that's all important. Store up treasures in heaven. And that includes things like giving generously to kingdom causes, serving God with your gifts. That includes things like putting your spiritual life and the life of your family before economic gain. That means putting godly education of your children before expensive vacations. That means that you will not sacrifice a godly education of your children because the public school offers much better sports programs and opens other opportunities perhaps for success. And live without fear of the future. And sometimes that might even mean limiting your attention to bad news. Limiting your attention to the alarmist language and teaching and drumbeat of political conservatives in our day so that they don't shape your outlook. And above all, brothers and sisters, trust in your Redeemer. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In times of fear, take refuge in Him. Remember that you belong to Him. He purchased you. Take comfort in that. And seek first His kingdom his righteousness, and everything you need for this life will be added to you. Amen.